0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church Podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Day where you barely had time to eat? You can respond with a raise of hands. How many of you had a day like that this week? All right? Okay, how many of you feel like that's every day of your life? All right, I knew there'd be a few. For me, that day was Tuesday this week. It was uh, probably a couple other days as well, but at least it was Tuesday. Um, Tuesday morning, I, I did breakfast. Breakfast was one and a half cups of Aldi coffee, which is not the best breakfast, but it was good enough to get me started. Um, which I drank on the way to the north side. I had a meeting down in the north side on Tuesday morning, and then that meeting went a little bit longer than I expected. Um, but I had to then drive from the north side all the way up to Ambridge, which is about a 45-minute drive to go to the next thing that I had to be at. And on the way there, I was on a phone meeting as well. So I was on a phone meeting on the way there. I go to school in Ambridge. Um, But this day, instead of having normal class, I'm in, had to go to a seminary there. We had a retreat day. We had a required retreat. That's something they do at seminaries, I guess. So we had a required retreat day that I had to go to. I was running three hours late to that already. Um, So, but this time it was at Old Economy Village. Um, And so we had this retreat over there. But on the way there, I was in this phone meeting, but I I was running late. I realized though that we didn't have lunch today. I forgot that usually lunch is included if we have class that day, but there was no lunch that day. So I ran through Wendy's and I went up to the drive-thru and I always asked for a second but I always know that I'm just gonna order off the value menu. I never look even at the other menus. I know my kids and my wife will someday at my funeral will just say he was he was inexpensive, at least. All I did, all I I don't even look, the numbers mean nothing. It is all value menu for me. Wendy's now is a four for four, so I don't even know why I asked for a minute because I knew what I was gonna do. Cheeseburger, four-piece chicken nuggets, fries, and root beer. Some of you are gonna go get that for lunch today. It's okay. So I saved this bag since Tuesday. I almost wrote sermon illustration on it. I was very tempted to throw it away. But I got so I got a four by four. I lost like fries in that little gap between the seat. They're going to be petrified by the time that I find them again. Uh, and so I'm driving. I finished up the meeting. I drive to uh, Old Economy Village. It's this old, basically it's this old community that was built by a group called the Harmonites. which is a quasi-Christian-esque kind of community. They also founded a place called New Harmony, Pennsylvania as well. And they built this village. It was kind of all-inclusive. They had a garden and a farm. They had a natural history museum. And at this point, I didn't really feel like retreating. So I just explored everything. I talked to people that were there, and at one point I was guided up to this place that they had this huge dining hall. So there's this, this is back in the 19th century. They had this huge second floor dining hall that at the time was the biggest in the country. You can go actually visit this even now if you go to Old Economy Village in Ambridge, where they would have these feasts many times throughout the year. Um, In addition to that, they were often eating together. They were almost always eating together as a community. And they even had a table set up of what it would have looked like on a feast day. And there's this big building that's just a kitchen next door where they would prepare all of these feasts. And as I was standing there taking a picture of this table still covered in salt from my 4x4, I was starting to think about how did we get from this kind of place where we're eating together at tables or that where we're having these feasts together to this place where we're crushing a 4x4 between meetings while we're on a phone meeting. With somebody else. How did that transition happen? Where we went from a place where eating together with others, especially other Christians, was a normal part of life for so much of church history, to a place again where we're rushing through our meals. Sometime over the past hundred years, we started this shift, especially in the past 50 to 60, where we, we shifted from a place where we would often eat meals together at a table. To a time where we're eating meals either at a you know in a car seat like this one this one I took right out of the church van whether we're eating in a seat like this one whether we're uh, we're eat, some of us are eating at our, our desk at work others of us are eating at a TV tray or at a, at a table but we're not eating with others we have Netflix pulled up we're catching up on a show or we're checking our email and meal is just something we're eating on while we're doing something else as well we went from a, a time where where our meals were really centered on the meal and the conversation that came with the meal to a time where our meals were actually centered not on the meal itself, but on entertainment, on doing something else. They were centered on work, on getting things done. Or we went from something that's, you know, it takes time and effort to prepare to something that you can order and have ready for you in seconds or that's easy and microwavable. We went from something that, um, that was seen as an important part of the day to seeing food as an interruption to everything else in our lives. We went from eating together, that's something that's usually done together over here at this table, to something that we're often instead doing alone. Or over here where we see meals as an end in themselves, as something that are just important. We're over here again, it's just a means to get on to something else. Just, just a little bit of gasoline so we can move on to the rest of what we had to do today. There's a woman named Louise Fresco who she wrote a book about eating together and a part of it was featured in the Atlantic a couple of years ago. And she says this, it's a long quote, but I think it's worth reading. She says, the dining table is disappearing. Fewer are being sold now in rich economies like ours, apparently. This says a lot about the times we live in. The table is less and less the center of family life. And I would add church life as well. We eat at the computer, standing in the kitchen, lounging on the sofa in front of the television, in the car or walking along the street. Best of all, we like to graze all day. I love that phrase. We do, if we do still eat at the table, then it's no longer a dining table, but one where eating shares space with other things such as a computer or television or newspapers. Sales of plates are declining too, and even more so serving dishes and cutlery designed for serving from them. More and more, the food we buy is ready to eat and throwaway tubs or trays are designed as finger food to be taken with one hand and no cutlery. What's the point of a table, she asks, if we can devour a microwave-ready meal on our laps? So the question is, is this, though, how it has to be? This is where we transition from many of our meals. But is this how it has to be? Or is it worth it to maybe pursue something like this again, to move back in this direction and to pursue eating together? Is it even possible? In our fast-paced culture where many of us are working more hours than ever, where our kids' schedules are busier than they've ever been, is it possible and even worth it to return back to eating meals together, not just with our own families, but even with other believers and possibly even unbelieving friends and neighbors? Is it worth it? And what would happen if we did? This morning, we're continuing a series called Spirit-Filled Church, where we're talking about 12 Marks of spirit-filled community. And the idea behind this series, what we're looking at, is we know that the early church was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God was in their midst. And you see all these just things happening in the book of Acts that are marking the day-to-day life of the church, especially in Acts chapter 1 through 9, which is where we're focusing on. And what we're asking is, do we see those same marks in our church? Now, the thing that we're not trying to do is to say, well, we should now try to, to try to achieve the same thing that the early church did, because the reason that they were the way they were is because the Holy Spirit was filling them up. But what we're looking at is, are we the same kind of church, or should we ask for more of the Holy Spirit to bring about more of these marks in our lives? And so we've covered a few things so far. We've talked about how the early church was a praying church. We've talked about how the early church was gospel-centered, that it proclaimed the gospel. We talked about how the early church was biblical, even, and how they taught from the scriptures, the Old Testament, and from the witness of the apostles, which we call the New Testament today. But this morning, what I want us to unpack is what does it mean to be an eating together church? I couldn't think of one word. So eating together church is what we're going after today. I thought about potluck church. It just didn't seem to get across the point. But we're going to talk about what does it mean to be an eating together church, and why is that a mark of the Spirit-filled community? So if you have a Bible this morning, open up to Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. It's the same text as last week. This is one of those, those texts where you get a lot of marks kind of just in a few couple of verses of the early church, and so we're going to be spending a—this is like the second of five weeks that we're going to be in here, unpacking some of the Marks here, so you get really used to hearing this text. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. Again, if you've never opened a Bible before, Acts comes after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the accounts about Jesus' life. And Acts is sort of the explanation of what the, the church was like when it was first getting started and how the church went into the whole world. So we're in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47, a very uh, a famous passage. It shaped the imagination of the church for 2,000 years. And it says this it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes. Everyone say, broke bread. Bread. And they ate together with glad and sincere, or some translations say, generous hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, first of all, we pray that you would do the same in us that you would add to our number daily those who are being saved. Even this morning, Lord, as your gospel is proclaimed, as your good news of what you've done comes forth, even as we talk about tables, Lord, I pray that you might meet us. Jesus, we know that the word of God is living and active. It's not dead and old or antique, but it actually pierces our hearts today that you, through your Holy Spirit, still speak to us this morning, no matter where we're coming from. Some of us have been in church our whole life. Some of us are walking in for the first time today. But Lord, you have a fresh word for us no matter where we are. So we come to your text believing that today as we read this passage and asking what does it mean to be a church that eats together. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's talk about what does it mean to be an eating together church. In this text, one of the things we learn is that one of the rhythms of the early church was that they were breaking bread together. In that first part of the text, it says this. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And these four things are kind of forming the rhythms of the early church. They're saying these are the things that they were doing often. These were their rhythms. They were getting together. We use the word gathering a lot to talk about this rhythm of the church. And in addition to that, it says it Explains a little bit more about that. It says down further, it says they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and then it says they were breaking bread in their homes and they were eating together with glad and sincere, our generous hearts. So, not only were they eating together, but there's a certain attitude that came along with it. They were doing it with glad and sincere hearts. But the question for us is why is eating together so important to the early church? Why is eating together a mark of a spirit-filled church? I can get praying together, right? That makes sense. I can get proclaiming and preaching the gospel. I get that. I can get why they were teaching from the spirit-inspired scriptures. But why is eating together an important part of what it means to be a spirit-filled church? church. And there's a few reasons for this, and I, I, I try to reduce it down to just two reasons to kind of get us started that I think this is an important part. And the first one is this, which I've really yinzerized for us, is that pierogies are the glue of community life. That you could say meals are the glue. Of, I've changed this like four times in my preparation. I originally said meals, and I said mashed potatoes, and I said no, we're in Pittsburgh. Pierogies are the glue of community life. That what we mean by that is that if you want to know whether or not you're a community with somebody else or with others, ask how often you eat together that how often you eat together is probably a good metric or measurement of how much of a community that you actually are. Because often healthy and strong communities eat together. Because eating together has this way of gluing us together slowly and invisibly with the people that we're eating with. That meals are never just about the food, but something happens over meals as we talk to one another, as we get below the surface, as we, as we hear about what's going on in people's lives. What God does through meals is he binds people together. He uses this social thing, and he binds us together into stronger community that often happens over meals. It's why if you're part of a discipleship community, we ask that you eat together regularly, whether it's a once a week or another rhythm that works for your community. It's why all the data, and I've been reading way too many like fatherhood books, but why all the data on parenting points to the fact that families who eat together tend to be stronger and healthier. There are a lot of other factors that factor into that, but eating together seems to be one of those top 10 things often that helps families bind together because something happens when you eat together. It's never just about the meal. Something is happening that we can't control. Community is being formed. Community isn't something that you go find, right? You don't go find community. Some of us are looking for a church community. We're hoping we could find community. Community is the byproduct of passing the pierogies week after week after week. Community happens as a byproduct, It's always the byproduct of doing things together, sharing experiences together, and simply passing the plate from one person to another. So pierogies are the glue of community life. The second thing is this, is that who is at your table, especially in the ancient world, who is at your table is more important than what is on your table. And who is at your table says something about whether or not the gospel is true. That in the ancient world, it was very important uh, to be careful about who you ate with. You didn't just eat with anybody. You ate with people who were of the same social class as you, the same religious sort of mindset as you. You didn't eat with people who were outside of your circle. Because if you ate with the wrong people, people were going to see you at the same level as the person who was the lowest common denominator at your table. So if you ate with sinners, they were going to see you as that. If you ate with slaves, they were going to see you as that. If you ate with low classes, they were going to see you as that. But what we see in the early church is we see them totally flipping that upside down. We see that when the gospel hits people, when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, we see it happening across genders. We see it happening across social classes. We see it happening across even ethnicities as people are receiving the Spirit, responding to the gospel, and they're coming together, and they're eating at these same tables. And so when outsiders are looking at that, they're like, what is going on here? The people that they eat with becomes the testimony of the gospel. That when you're eating with people that are different than you, it becomes a, a way of showing that the gospel, that the fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, not just for me, but for everybody, is actually a true thing. And so again, this is why one of the things that you see in the life of Jesus, so many of his conflicts happened around tables. Because people were confused why he, why he was eating with just anybody. And one of the most famous passages, and the reason we named our son Levi, is this story. Levi, who's a tax collector, this moment happens where it says, Levi held a great banquet for Jesus. Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? The people we eat with should cause the world to ask questions about the gospel that we believe. If the people we eat with is explainable, nobody's going to ask us questions. But one of the things about the church is often it's unexplainable except by the Spirit of God and by the gospel that we believe. So nothing creates community like eating meals together. And who we eat with is a way of witnessing to the gospel that we believe, that it changes even how we socialize with others. And in, the, in this passage, it's similar to my sermon on prayer a few weeks ago, we see two marks or two descriptors of what, the, what meals in the earliest spirit-filled churches looked like. First is that they were together instead of alone. They were together instead of alone. And the second thing is that they were with glad and sincere or generous, heart, generous hearts instead of seeing something at, seeing them as burdensome. So let's start with that first one, is that the meals in the early church were together rather than alone. Many of our meals are done alone, or at least at the very most alone with our own families. There's some data for us to kind of support this sort of view over here. The average American eats one-fifth of their meals in his or her car. Uh, A quarter of Americans eat one fast food meal every single day. We spend about the same on eating out as we do on groceries. Obviously, not everybody is following Dave Ramsey. Half of all adult eating situations are done alone, 47%. 47% of adult eating situations are done alone. And in addition, even if we do eat with others, we tend to stick with our own families. Some of you are like, man, my life is, I'm I'm in those stats. That's my life, and I get it. I'm there in a lot of ways, you know, as I'm becoming a dad, as I'm a husband, as I'm stretching my life between church and school, that by the time I get home, sometimes I don't want to spend time with other people. I want to just be with my family. I want to just be with these people. I want to get to know them a little bit better. I don't want to go with other people. Even during the day, I know I can eat with others, but I'd rather just eat alone and be by myself and read a book. That's my Netflix, Um, and just do anything other than be with people sometimes. So I get it. I understand, but for the early church one of the things that you see is that eating together was an everyday rhythm in their lives. That potlucks weren't just an event you put on every once in a while. You plan three weeks away or you do once every summer. But it was just a part of their lives. It could be described as something they do constantly or every day because they were doing it so much. The fellowship hall, which we used to call the downstairs the fellowship hall, and now we call it the commons. The fellowship hall wasn't some room in a church building because churches didn't have buildings. So the fellowship hall was a was, you know, the Lancers dining room. The fellowship hall was the Dulles' kitchen. The fellowship hall was the Hoy's living room. It was these spaces in our homes because that's where we met for church. The fellowship hall were these regular spaces in our houses. And that's one of the things you see again in the early church is that getting together, fellowshipping, joining each other for meals was a normal part. It was normal to cook some extra rice and chicken just in case somebody came over, in case your kids brought somebody by for dinner. It was normal to have dinner with other families without seeing it as an interruption to your family time because you knew that these people were part of your family now. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. It was normal to send out a text asking a few friends if you could get anything for them while you were at Giant Eagle. It was normal not to spend five hours deep cleaning every room of your house, even, not, even the rooms that nobody will ever see before somebody came over. It was normal to just allow people into your home. And I was thinking about, why was this so important to the early church? Why Of all the things, right, they, they could have been about, why was it so important for them to eat together? In addition to those reasons we listed before, one of the things to remember about the first century is that if you go back to the beginning of Acts, there were only 120 Christians, right? It's a pretty, you're, I think you could call that a minority. Um, and then after that, 3,000 people got saved. So you now have 3,120 Christians sort of in Jerusalem, which is still a minority. And many of those people have gone back to their homes, gone back to their nations where they came from. And so you still have Christians who are in a minority in this primarily Jewish context. And these Christians, what separates them from all of their Jewish friends and family is that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah that Jews have been looking forward to for years. But when you come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and none of your friends believe that, and that Messiah was just crucified, and now you're believing that he rose from the dead, you're going to start losing friends, you're going to start losing family, you're going to start losing your entire cultural and social status, you might lose your job when you become a Christian. It's why Jesus, when he uh, is talking to his disciples about the cost of following him, he says this, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields from me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and field, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus wouldn't have to, had to say this unless this actually happened to people all the time. And when you decided you were going to follow Jesus back then, it wasn't be like, high fives, man. But, you know, what's true for you is great. You just keep doing that. No, you just rejected everything. You just rejected your family, and your family's going to reject you. You just rejected your friends. You didn't mean to, and they're going to reject you. You might have just lost your job. And so now the Christians are often the only people you have to eat with. That's what Jesus meant when he said that, I promise you a hundred times this. He says that these people are going to fill the place of those people who you've just lost. That you're going to start having meals together with these other Christians as well. I experienced this. It's hard to understand this in a, in, a, in a culture where Christianity is still in the majority. But I was in Egypt uh, two summers ago. And when I was in Egypt, I got to meet a lot of different kinds of people, some of whom had become Christians and converted from Islam to Christianity. And one, I'll just call him Muhammad. We got to meet him and he gave us a tour of old Islamic Cairo. We went in some old mosques. We went into some ancient parts of Cairo. But at the end of the day, he, and he told us, he's like, this is where I used to go as a kid. This is where I used to worship. This is where I used to do all these things. At the end of the day... He told us his story about how he'd he'd become a Christian. He had changed his name. He had a lot of Christians there choose new names, um, but he hadn't changed his given name yet. He had just let the Christians start calling him by his new name, and he hadn't come out to his family yet about his faith because his family was a high influential Muslim family, and he knew that if he came out, it wasn't just that he might be killed, but his point was that he knew that he would be. His family was going to reject him. He was going to lose everything. And so at this point in his life, he was spending lots of time with the Christians because he was preparing for that season where he was going to lose everybody. And so the Christians were getting together because these are the people that you have. You have lost a lot of your friends and family, and this is who you're getting together with. So the first thing, again, that we see is that it was together rather than alone. The second thing, though, is that we see that the attitude concerning it was glad and sincere rather than burdensome. That meals together were seen as a glad and sincere or a glad and generous experience, an experience of abundance, rather than a burdensome experience that feels like a weekly chore. Meals together were a glad and sincere experience rather than a burdensome experience. When I was thinking about how people describe getting together for meals today, many of us can, just, we can think of moments where we love it, but when we think of like you know two weeks out where we have to meet with somebody for a meal, often it just puts a burden on us. It puts a burden on us, and I hear the way that people describe meals is rarely as glad and sincere, but for a lot of people, it sounds burdensome, and I thought of a few reasons why I think that is. One is I think in some ways we are the Pinterest generation, um, not necessarily men and women, but you know, we're, all, we're, we're the Pinterest generation, and what I mean by that is for many of us, our whole life is now on display, and our life and how our house look, the kind of clothes that we wear become a way that people grade us. And so we feel like for a lot of us, our identity is wrapped up in how our lives appear and how our homes appear. This is um, a screenshot of Pinterest when I searched uh, tables. Um, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think anybody's table looks like that. Uh, I, I, it might for some of you, but if your table looked like that all the time, you'd probably never eat on it um, because it'd be too pretty. Um, it'd take hours to get ready and I know that this is you know, above and beyond what most people feel like our tables need to look like, but for some of us, again, especially women, there's this sense that if my life doesn't look Instagram-worthy, if it doesn't look amazing um, through a filter, then it's not even worth having people over. If my life doesn't look like Chip and Joanna Gaines from Fixer Upper, complete with the whole home and hearth line from Target, nobody's coming over. If there's not shiplap somewhere, if there's not exposed brick, if there's not you know, hardwood floors, if there's not—I uh, had one more thing—an old farm table, forget it. Nobody's coming over to my house um, because it's not worthy of having people lay eyes on it. For others of us, um, having people over just feels like too much work, right? And this often comes from the other one, but having people over just feels like too much work from the preparation to the cleanup. Instead of seeing a meal as an, as an opportunity for people to work together, for people to bring food and to help with cleanup, we often see it as a one-man or a one-woman show, um, which is often described as entertaining. My friend, Steve pointed that out to me this week, this idea where we see having people over as a one-man show, and we call it entertaining, but that's not and that's not how meals were made to be. So we don't ask guests to bring anything. We don't ask guests. We never offer to bring anything. We don't bring anything. I'm just as guilty as that. And then after the meal's over, we do all the cleaning up ourselves. We don't ask the guests to get involved. You know, we, we don't want to put anything on them. But so instead, though, community becomes entertaining. Another reason is that we see eating together as just an interruption to our lives. Again, some of us, after parenting all day, see the idea of eating and having more people in our home as just exhausting to think about. Or some of us who are coming home from work all day and just wanting to spend time with our families, the idea of getting together with others sounds exhausting. Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to spend my time? that just hang out with people I don't really like anyways. There are so many other things I'd rather do. I have a hobby that I'd rather be working on. I'd rather be vegging out in front of Netflix or just hanging with my own family or doing some projects around the house, right? And so some of us see it as an interruption, and then others of us are just straight-up introverts. And so the idea of hanging out with other people is just like the worst imaginable. I'm, I took, i took—I don't remember which test tells us whether we're introverts or not, but when I take it, I'm always exactly between introvert and extrovert, which basically means that I'm always unhappy, is what I found. Um, <laughs> that when I'm with people, I'm unhappy. When I'm not with people, I'm unhappy. And then sometimes I'm happy with people, and sometimes I'm happy when I'm not with people. And so I, I'm just kind of very unpredictable and sad. Okay, so... Anyways, there's all these reasons, right, why we tend to see eating together as a burdensome experience. And so, again, I was wondering, what made the early church, why did it feel like a glad and sincere or a glad and generous experience for them rather than a burdensome one? Why could it be described as glad and generous or glad and sincere rather than burdensome? And I was thinking, as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of a church that meets here on Sunday nights. Some of you know, if you've ever driven past our church on Sunday nights, there's a lot of people walking into our church and they're like, is there some kind of event going on? Is this some kind of party I wasn't invited to? Yes. Um, there's a Bhutanese church that meets here. You are invited, actually. A Bhutanese church that meets here on Sunday nights. And they've been meeting here for a long time. Um, and when they first started, they still do this a lot together, but when they first started, they were eating meals together all the time. They put plastic on the whole floor downstairs to make sure no food went anywhere. You'd walk into our, our, our church the next day, and it smelled like a Bhutanese restaurant. It was great. Um, but they were eating meals together all the time, and I, was, I remember being convicted by the amount of times that they were eating together. And one of the things that I realized is that when you're you know, in a place like Pittsburgh where you're in the minority, you're a Bhutanese and you're a Bhutanese refugee, and not only are you a Bhutanese refugee, you're a Bhutanese refugee Christian, getting together with other Bhutanese refugee Christians is a special time. It's life-giving. It's a moment where you get to see people who have been in the same boat as you, who share the experiences that you've had, who have been where you are. And so you see getting together with those people as a normal and as something you long for in your life. Um, and I think the same is true for the early church. Again, when you look at the early church, they were a small, marginalized minority in Jerusalem and in the early world, which meant getting together with other Christians was going to be a special, life-giving time. They also drank Welch's grape juice, or drank wine instead of Welch's grape juice, and I have a feeling that has something to do with it as well. Um, but nonetheless, they, they could be described as having glad and sincere hearts. Because again, I think it was a special experience when you're getting together with that, that small minority of people who are in the same boat as you. And in our culture, where Christians are in the majority, where Christianity is still, still a bit of a cultural thing that you do, it's easy to lose that perspective. It's easy to lose that sense that, we, um, that, that these, this is a special experience to get together with other people. But one of the things that i found is that for me and my own family, when we started to commit to eating together with others more often, that at first it felt like a burdensome experience. And sometimes it still does. But what we found is that it, became, it started to lead to really feeling like a life-giving thing and a thing I look forward to, and a thing I miss when it's not happening. And so um, one of the things that I want to say before we we go on and think about this a little bit more is that what you see in Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 is an Instagram of the early church. Um, What I mean is that it's showing you the best of the early church. They weren't always probably glad and sincere. They weren't always having meals together. There were probably weeks where they missed it. There were probably weeks where everyone was grumpy. And you know that because you read it throughout the Bible. You see that in Corinth, people were getting drunk at their meals or eating too much and not leaving enough food for everybody else. You see in Rome, some people were okay with eating food that was bought that had been in the marketplace where food was being bought that had been sacrificed to idols, where other people that hurt their consciences and they felt like they were doing something something sinful, and it was causing a conflict. You see later in Acts that somehow they kept overlooking the Greek widows when they were passing the potatoes, and they kept overlooking them, and they weren't getting food in the daily distribution. So the early church messed up too, but this is what it looked like on its best days. And so our meals, again, in our culture have shifted, though, from being together to often being alone. They've shifted from being maybe a glad and sincere or a glad and generous experience to one that can feel burdensome, and like a chore. And if you were to rate our church, where would we fall on the scale between these two things? I don't want you to rate us out loud again, but where would we fall on the scale between these two things? Would we we fall closer to alone or closer to together? Closer to burdensome or closer to glad and sincere? Or even if you were to rate your own life on this. But what would it look like to become a church that could be described like the church in Acts? Acts. A church that's breaking bread together in their homes and eating together with glad and sincere hearts. Where do we even start? I want to offer just three things. Um, Julie and I have gathered together for a lot of meals with people over the past few years as we've started being a part of discipleship communities where we have to eat meals with people week after week after week. And so we've eaten a lot of meals uh, lately with people. Julie and I still have a lot of areas we're trying to grow. These are three things that if you're trying to figure out what does it look like to start eating together with others more, here are three suggestions I want to give you. Um, One is to make it scruffy. Two is to make it normal. And the three is to make extra. I couldn't find an it to put in the third. So make it scruffy, make it normal, and make it and make extra. The first one is to make it scruffy. My friend Leslie Thyberg, who I brought in to talk to some of our leaders recently about hospitality, she taught me a phrase that's called scruffy hospitality, which she learned from somewhere else. And scruffy hospitality is the exact opposite of southern hospitality. Southern hospitality makes sure everything is perfect. Scruffy scruffy hospitality says, I just want you in the door. I just want you at my house. I don't care how it looks. There is underwear on the floor somewhere. There is a wet towel crumpled up near the door somewhere. It's okay. You can still come into my house. That's called scruffy hospitality hospitality. And I guarantee you, if you, can, if you can get over that, finding your identity in your home, finding it in Jesus, you can start practicing this. Uh, this is the way it's described. Scruffy hospitality means you're not waiting for everything in your house to be in order before you host and serve friends in your home. Scruffy hospitality means you hunger more for good conversation than serving a simple meal of what you have, not what you don't have. Scruffy hospitality means you're more interested in the quality conversation than the impression your home or lawn makes. It's okay for your home to look nice. I want to just mention that. It's okay for your home to look nice. But that doesn't have to become the main burden on your life in order to have people over to your house. Our hope is that as Christians, we can enter into one another's homes and not determine our worth by how our house looks, but determine our worth by what Christ has done in our lives. Our identity is not bound up in how our homes or our tables look. The second thing, though, is to make it normal. To make it normal. Instead of thinking of meals together as an event that you have to plan three weeks from now, where you find time in both you and your spouse's calendar or your whole family, where you can finally, you have to get everybody on this management software to make sure you can find uh, a time to meet. Instead of seeing meals as an event, we already have to eat meals every day. All we need to do is take some of those meals and maybe create take one a week where we say, let's take this meal and invite people over to be part of it. Uh, maybe for your family, it might work to say, you just choose a day of the week to say, this is our, our one meal a week where we invite people over. We make a list of people that we want to go through until somebody says yes. Um, We just keep inviting. Every Sunday night, we make a decision. On Thursday nights, we're going to have people over to eat, and here's the list we're going to start inviting from. If nobody comes, that's okay. We tried. So the first thing, the second thing, again, is to just try to make it normal. Work it into the rhythms of your family. Just choose a night a week. Ask who we can invite over. And the third thing, though, is to make extra. This is the more organic way to start moving toward it, is that when you make your meals, start just making extra. If you normally cook for one, start cooking for two. If you normally cook for two, cook for four. If you cook for four, cook for six. Just put a little bit of extra in there. The worst that's going to happen is you're going to have leftovers. Um, and we're allowed to have leftovers in our culture. And you have tons of little China takeout trays that you can put all your leftovers in. And then you can take it for lunch later when you're going to eat alone. So the point, though, that I'm trying to get at is that we can make extra. And then if somebody comes over on a whim or for like, hey, I was just talking to so-and-so today. I'm going to have them over. Or your kids say, can I bring someone over for dinner? You can say, yep, we made extra today. It's okay. So if we're making extra, it becomes easy to have people over. In a beautiful book um, by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield, it's called The Gospel Comes with the House Key. She writes this, The nuts and bolts of hospitality ministry is beans, rice, vegetables, and sometimes chicken. And just putting it early, making some of it, and making a little bit of extra, and being ready for those moments to have people over for dinner. And the easiest place to start, I think, is to just join a discipleship community. Some of you are in these already. Um, And one of the things that we try to do as discipleship communities is to eat together regularly. The next one starts up in February. But one of the things we found is that eating together can be a very messy experience. Um, Sometimes you get stains on the floor. Um, on your brand new carpets. Sometimes you get stains on the ceiling. There are, st- <laughs> there are stains in some, uh, some of the ceilings of people who have hosted DCs. But when I've talked to people about that, one of the things that I think is worth mentioning is, again, the, the, the measure of a healthy life and a healthy home is not no stains on your carpet. I would say it's probably how many stains are on your carpet is the mark of how healthy your home is. Um, sometimes we don't make enough food and we run out and we have to run out and get extra food because we ate too much or the first people in line ate too much. So then sometimes we then have to sit down and talk about rules for how we eat together when we get together because people, some people are eating too much. Sometimes fiesta where it gets broken and that's okay because it's worth it. Even though it's messy, it's hard. Sometimes it feels burdensome. It's worth it. On Tuesday, the day when I crushed uh, this Wendy's four by four, that night and after uh, I went to that, that Harmonite village, that night I actually had dinner with my discipleship community and it had been a long day. Me and Julie had been all over the place. We just got Levi back and we had an hour to try to cook macaroni and cheese um, for this discipleship community. We didn't just want it to be craft. We wanted it to be real special and fun, like Pioneer Woman, you know, mac- macaroni and cheese. And so we made it. And, and again, we, it would have been easier at that point to just say, you know what, we're not going. We're not going to eat with others tonight. We're just going to get China Sea again. Um, you know, we know what we want. It's very easy. We could just sit at home and watch a show on Netflix. But instead, we decided to try to, we, we decided to go to take it. And yet again, it proved to be worth it. I got to know new people who were there for the first time. I got to talk with others to get to know some people better. We got to laugh. We got to enjoy time with other people. And the Lancers were hosting this. This is a picture, yet again, an Instagram of what community looks like sometimes. This is not a picture of the mess that was on the floor, of the macaroni that is stuck between your toes. Um, But this is, again, one of the things that when you look at the early church, this is what we're trying to do here, is to have these moments in believing that community is built over meals. Sometimes it feels like a burden, I admit that, but it's often worth it. I truly believe that one of the greatest ways that we can be a witness for the gospel in our culture is by how we eat together and the attitude we bring to the way that we eat together. That I have a feeling if people looked at us and they saw that we were eating together regularly with glad and generous hearts, people would start asking questions about us. Um, One time uh, we had a potluck in the park, all the young adults were there, Um, back in the day when we did The View. And there was only two discipleship communities at the time. And there were two meeting in Bellevue. And we all met up in the park where we had a big cookout. Gary McGrail was the one flipping the burgers and the hot dogs. And we had, there was probably 20 to 30 of us there. We were playing baseball um, out in the park. We were eating meals at, uh, are we eating meals under the pavilion? And somebody, we were calling all these people, anybody who was in the park, we were inviting them to join us. And somebody came over and joined us. And they just said, I'm, just a little, I'm a little confused about what you guys are. Um, are you guys some kind of family or something? And Julie was the first to respond, and I love this response from my wife. She said, yeah, I guess you could describe us as something like that. Because that's what happens when you start to eat together regularly. That community and the sense of family is slowly built over time. I'm going to invite Sam up to start playing as we get ready to, for our time of worship. Um, and as we come to a close, I want to talk about just one other aspect of what it means to break bread together. In the early church, rarely was communion just something you did on Sundays. Sometimes it was. Um, but communion, or the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist, where we break bread and we drink juice, it represents Christ's body broken for us and his blood poured out for us, it was often just a special part of an ordinary meal. Um, that For the early church, that phrase, breaking bread, meant regular meals together, but it also meant taking part in this meal together where we break bread and where we drink juice, remembering the gospel. For the early church, again, it was just a special part of their meals together. For the early church, meals were about more than meals. Meals became a sermon. They became a way of proclaiming the gospel, that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, and that he would one day return. That when they gathered together for a meal, they took this ordinary thing and they allowed it to become a space where the gospel could be proclaimed, both to the believers, and if there were unbelievers present, they might hear that good news as well. And so for us, ultimately, it's not about just eating at this table or eating in the car. Ultimately, it's about partaking of these things, Uh, partaking in in, in, in in the body of Christ broken for us and his blood poured out for us. And the hope is that other people come around us and experience that, and they might begin to experience the gospel at our tables as well. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, where Paul's writing to the church. And he says this, For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Forever, whenever you eat this, uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.